Good afternoon. Thank you for joining today's discussion. I'm Jim Doyle from Business Forward, and I'll be moderating our conversation today. Currently, all lines are in listen-only mode. Today, we'll discuss the Federal Court challenge to the Clean Power Plan, the steps likely to lead to review by the Supreme Court, and how business leaders can weigh in on the merits of CPP. Joining us is Simon A. Steele, a constitutional attorney and former U.S. Supreme Court clerk. After brief remarks uh, from Simon, uh, he will answer questions uh, and respond to comments. For those of you who are new to our programming, Business Forward organizes local roundtables, Washington fly-ins, conference calls, webinars, media trainings for more than 100,000 business leaders across America. At these briefings, entrepreneurs, investors, small business owners, and executives get a chance to advise policymakers on issues affecting their businesses and how Washington can work with business to accelerate our economy. To date, more than 550 senior administration officials, members of Congress, governors, and mayors have participated in our programming. We have a presence in about 125 cities. We do a briefing pretty much every day. This is all thanks to the support of more than 60 of America's largest and most respected companies. Before we get started, I wanted to cover a few housekeeping items. First, this call is on the record and reporters may be listening. Second, we will be sending a recording of this call following today's discussion and include any resources mentioned on the call. And finally, uh, there will be time for you to ask questions or make uh, comments. You can do this in one of two ways. You can press 1 on your dial pad at any time during the remarks to uh, be put into queue to ask a question live, or you can just email it to us at info at businessfwd.org. That's info at businessfwd.org. When you call uh, on the line, uh, to, uh, uh, please introduce yourself with your business and where you're calling from. Again, just press 1 at any time on your dial pad to be put in queue to ask a question, or email your questions to us at info at businessfwd.org and we'll put it in the queue. Okay, let's get started. Uh, please welcome Simon Steele. Simon? Thanks a lot, Jim, and uh, thanks everyone for uh, joining us this afternoon. Um, as, as Jim mentioned, uh, I'm a constitutional lawyer. I uh, clerked for uh, the Supreme Court uh, 20 years ago now, um, so uh, I have some experience with amicus briefs and uh, I'm going to uh, say, say a few words just uh, as, as background. Probably a lot of folks on this call are aware of what's going on with the Clean Power Plan case, but I'll give a brief outline of that. Um, and then I'll uh, say how I expect the case to progress, and, and then we'll sort of get into what I think is probably the, the focus we want to have, as Jim said, uh, which is how business leaders could get involved at the Supreme Court stage with uh, amicus briefs. Okay, so the, the Clean Power Plan is a rule issued by the Environmental Protection Agency uh, in August 2015. Uh, it's the product of several years of rulemaking, starting with the uh, 2009 uh, determination that uh, carbon dioxide is a pollutant that should be regulated under the Clean Air Act. Uh, there was a um, draft rule published in 2014, which was the subject of various legal proceedings, and eventually the final rule, as I mentioned, came out in 2015. Uh, it sets the first ever national standards for CO2 emissions. Uh, it is, doesn't regulate all CO2 emissions. It's specific to the energy industry uh, and mainly affects existing energy generating existing energy generators. Um, although it's a national rule, it works on a state-by-state -state basis. Uh, what it does is it sets uh, customized standards for each state 
uh, that uh, the, the generating plants in that state uh, are meant to achieve by 2022, and then the standards get tighter each year up to 2030. Uh, and the intent is to, by 2030, reduce um, carbon dioxide uh, levels from uh, energy plants uh, by 32% from 2005 levels. Uh, the way it sets standards for each state uh, is in terms of uh, total carbon dioxide mass produced or in terms of pounds of carbon dioxide per megawatt hour. Um, and it, it's an example of cooperative federalism, uh, which is to say that the federal government sets the basic standards and goals, but then uh, creates a structure in which the states have a lot of flexibility uh, to figure out how best to meet those goals. Uh, the federal standards are based on something called BSER, uh, the best demonstrated system of emissions reduction for that particular class of sources. So different rules for um, coal sources as opposed to gas sources, for example. Um, the, in, in determining what was BSER, in other words, what plants, what energy generators ought to be capable of, um, the the EPA took into account several different strategies for reducing carbon emissions. Uh, first, uh, reducing carbon intensity of a particular plant. Uh, second, substituting uh, gas for coal or clean energy for gas or coal. Uh, and third, uh, use of emissions trading, uh, emissions permit trading programs. Uh, the, fed the federal rule includes a model rule uh, which the states can use, but they don't have to use. They can come up with their own rules so long as it achieves the goals. Uh, and there are also federal backstop regulations if the states fail to achieve the goals. That's the basic framework of what the CPP is. Um, as soon as it was published, it was, of course, challenged on various, uh, primarily statutory, but some constitutional grounds, uh, by a large number of challengers. And uh, in, in total, there are about 50 lawsuits filed, but they've all been consolidated into one case. Um, and the, the, the DC Circuit um, Court of Appeals uh, held a uh, on-bank hearing on that case about a week ago, uh, Tuesday before last, 20, the 27th of September. Um, obviously, we don't have time here to get into great technical detail about what the legal issues are in the case, but I'll summarize them quickly. There are some very technical procedural issues, particularly about um, the notice and opportunity for comment that were or were not provided between the 2014 draft rule and the 2015 final rule. There are federalism issues, uh, issues regarding whether the um, federal government has improperly co-opted the states and forced them to do more than it should. There are jurisdictional issues about whether uh, certain aspects of this kind of regulation are the proper domain of the EPA or of FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. There are issues about BSER and the standards that were set. Um, in other words, is it feasible to meet these standards and is it legitimate for 
the EPA to require measures to be taken that don't just involve improving how you run your power plant, but effectively require you to engage in emissions trading or change your mode of energy generation. And there are uh, pretty narrow uh, technical issues about the interpretation of Section 111D of the Clean Air Act. Uh, in particular, whether the EPA can regulate CO2 emissions uh, at plants where it's already regulating mercury emissions. As I said, about uh, 50 challenges were uh, filed to this case. Uh, the, the challenges include 28 states, a large number of energy utilities, uh, part of the mining industry, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, chemical and steel injuries, uh, industries, United Mine Workers, uh, various congressmen, and various other businesses. Uh, on the other side, obviously, the EPA is defending the case. Uh, 18 states, a uh, large number of cities uh, have come in as amici uh, in support of the EPA. Uh, also, environmental and public health groups, of course, uh, some clean and some gas uh, energy companies, and uh, several business leaders have already come in. There's a combined brief of Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft, an amicus brief. There's also a uh, IKEA brief. Um, so there's, there's already a, a huge amount of participation and a huge amount of briefing in this case. Um, a couple of notes on the, on the history of how this proceeding has worked so far. On February the 9th, 2016, by a 5-4 vote, uh, the Supreme Court um, ordered a stay of the Clean Power Plan, so the administration cannot enforce it, pending not only the D.C. Circuit's decision, but a subsequent Supreme Court decision. Uh, that was uh, interestingly enough, the, probably the last vo uh, decisive vote cast by Justice Scalia before his death four days later. Um, as I said, the proceedings before the D.C. Circuit, they took the unusual step of going on bank, having the full court hear the case rather than the usual three-judge panel. Uh, that hearing occurred last week. It, it lasted for seven hours, which is reflective of the extreme complexity of the issues in the case. Uh, it, was, it was heard by a panel of 10 judges. Uh, for what it's worth, six of them are Democratic appointees, four of them are Republican appointees. Uh, Judge Garland sat out and uh, did not participate in light of his uh, pending Supreme Court nomination. Uh, it's, it's, it's very hard to say how the D.C. Circuit will decide this case. I think the, the fact that the Supreme Court split 5-4 on the stay is, is indicative of the fact that it raises pretty close issues. Uh, most of the uh, analysis I've seen suggests that the, there's, a, there's a, probably a more than even chance that the Clean Power Plan will survive the uh, DC Circuit's decision, but it's far from certain. Um, so now let's turn to what might happen after um, the DC Circuit renders its decision. Uh, it typically takes about four months for the D.C. Circuit to render a decision after a hearing. So best guess would be that a D.C. Circuit decision will come down in around about February 2017. Uh, once it does, I think it's an absolute certainty uh, 
uh, at least if we uh, have a Clinton administration going forward, um, that whatever decision the D.C. Circuit makes will be appealed. Uh, if, if Donald Trump wins the presidential election, uh, he is on record as opposing the Clean Power Plan, and uh, his EPA would presumably shelve it, which would move the case and everything would be over. But assuming that uh, the case goes forward, um, there would be briefing in the first half of 2017 before the Supreme Court on the cert petition, the petition uh, asking the court to hear the case. Um, that petition will probably be decided round about July 2017. There would then be briefing on the merits of the case uh, in the period between July and October. Uh, and again, this is premised on the estimate of four months for the DC Circuit to decide. It could be a month or two either way from that. Uh, my best guess is that there would be a merits oral argument in the Supreme Court in approximately December 2017 and a decision coming out in early 2018. Uh, now, now let's turn to amicus briefs. Um, as I mentioned, Several entities, including not just uh, energy businesses, but other businesses such as uh, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, have already filed amicus briefs in the DC Circuit. Uh, and Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and others have filed in support of the Clean Power Plan. Um, from my experience, when, when I clerked, and uh, having since written a fair few of these, um, their amicus briefs are often very valuable both to the uh, advocate and to the court. Uh, let me say a little bit first about why I think it might be in a business's interest to consider filing an amicus brief. Um, first, there is, of course, the legal function of an amicus brief, which is to help the court reach a fully informed and hopefully favorable decision. Um, Second, there's a political function. Uh, an amicus brief is a, is a forum, it's an opportunity uh, to articulate your, your views on this very important issue. Uh, third, there's potentially a, a branding function. Uh, by investing in an amicus brief and taking a public stance, uh, you can show your business to be a supporter of clean energy, uh, to be supporting the government policy here, and to be confident that you can meet the challenges and will prosper under a CPP uh, regime. Now, of course, there's many other ways that you can achieve those political and branding functions, uh, op-eds, lobbying, etc., etc. Um, from the from the court standpoint, um, some amicus briefs are very helpful. Some are not. Uh, I, I had experience when I clerked of, uh, I remember one case where we had about 30 amicus briefs, uh, and I will not pretend that I or the rest of the court read all of those amicus briefs. Uh, the court receives a large number of amicus briefs that are not particularly helpful uh, for one of two reasons. Either they're just very broad and political and don't relate to the actual legal issues before the court, or they are just me-too briefs, briefs that just copy the legal arguments already made by the parties. The ideal amicus brief uh, falls somewhere between those two extremes. 
it makes broader policy arguments that educate the court about the bigger issues involved in the case, and especially arguments that educate the court about the practicalities, how things will work. Is this workable? How will industry adapt to this? What gains will industry really achieve from this? Um, those are extremely useful and, and can have considerable effect. Uh, the other thing that I think is an important guide in terms of amicus briefs is that, again, a pile of 30 amicus briefs is not particularly encouraging for the court. It's much better, if you can, uh, to coordinate and have a group of well-respected businesses file together, uh, articulating a common perspective. Um, it doesn't matter how many briefs are filed, but who files uh, really does matter and does influence the court. Uh, and certainly in a, in a case like this, where there's a lot of room for judgment and a lot of effective discretion, um, having more briefs from the business community to counterbalance uh, the briefs that will be in there from energy companies and the Chamber of Commerce and so on uh, could be very valuable. The next issue, I guess, is what would one say in, in these briefs? Uh, that will obviously be very heavily influenced by what the DC Circuit says. Um, the, the DC Circuit's analysis will, will frame and create a starting point for the briefing in the Supreme Court. Um, and it will also obviously very heavily depend on what a particular amicus, a particular business is, is interested in talking about when its true interests are here. Uh, but uh, as an initial speculation, I think some of the, and I'd love to get other people's thoughts on this, but some of the issues that might be considered here are, as I mentioned, one of the legal issues in the case is, is federalism, federal authority versus state authority, uh, explaining why there's a need for a federal national regulatory solution, explaining why state-based state regulation won't do the job here. Another topic could be benefits to industry, benefits to business expected, reduced costs over the long term, the importance of having a national plan with a long-term vision that creates predictability for, for business investment. Um, another perspective could be to say that yes, the, the standards set forth in, in the plan uh, are achievable, the market mechanisms like emissions trading that it uses are tried and tested and workable mechanisms, and we as the business community uh, can comply with this and prosper under this. Uh, another possible angle might be the international significance and importance of the Clean Power Plan in light of the Paris Courts. So th that's just a very initial rough speculation of some issues that might be ripe for amicus briefs. I'll, I'll, I'll say thank one you, more thank thing. Thank uh, okay. Uh, just just one, one last thing about amicus briefs is the, the process of, of putting them together. Um, 
Obviously, we're, we're a long way at the moment from when a brief would be filed, and we'll probably be looking at filing a brief in something like um, July 2017. Uh, but there is a need to coordinate uh, with other interested parties if you're going to come up with a joint amicus brief. Uh, it's highly advisable to work through uh, multiple outlines to figure out what exactly your issues are and to get interests aligned. Uh, obviously, writing a brief takes a, a fair bit of time, um, and they'll be able to very carefully review what's, what the DC Circuit is saying and possibly coordinate with other anarchy. So all of that does involve significant planning and significant investment of time, uh, but there's a, there's a real potential to have to achieve something that could be impactful both for the businesses involved and uh, very useful for the court. Thank you very much, Simon. Uh, now we'll open up to questions and comments. If you have a question, please press 1 on your dial pad to speak live on the call, or you can email your question to info at businessfwd.org. Please be sure to tell us your company name and where you're calling from if you do. Um, our, our first question is an email question. It is from uh, Laura Skinnell in Chicago, Illinois, uh, No Business Listed. Uh, and it says, uh, you mentioned four arguments uh, uh, that could be made. Um, I think she, uh, she's referring to the regulatory solution, benefits to industry, ability of industry to comply and prosper, and uh, international significance. Um, and she said, uh, should the brief, can a brief make uh, more than one argument? Uh, can a brief make all four arguments? Uh, absolutely. You can make as many arguments as you want. Uh, there is certainly something to be said in a case like this that's apt to have multiple amicus briefs um, for, if, if, if it's possible, uh, coordinating with other interested parties, other amici on your side, and, and sometimes it'll make sense to have sort of a pact whereby you know, one amicus brief deals with one set or pair of issues, and another amicus brief deals with a different set or pair of issues. Um, you know, that, that avoids unnecessary duplication and avoids uh, diluting your effort. Um, but absolutely, you can, you can address whatever issues you want in an amicus brief. Um, that's sort of the beauty of it. You're not strictly confined to what the parties are arguing or to just one issue. Uh, next question is from uh, Carolyn O'Neill and uh, from um, New Hampshire, uh, no company listed. Uh, do, the, do, the, do the justices and the, the clerks uh, pay attention to the uh, news that surrounds the cases? Very little, I think. Um, and, and I think probably particularly little in a case like this because the briefing will be so voluminous that they, they just won't have time to consider other things beyond the briefs. Uh, obviously, the, the briefs can refer to, to, to news developments and so on. Um, but I think if it's, if it's not in the briefs, they're, they're not going to be thinking or looking at it. Okay. Um, just on a related point for that, I think um, uh, just based on our work on other issues and uh, uh, the the PR work, the op-eds, the, the interviews with business leaders on these issues matter a great deal, not to the justices um, uh, making the decision, but they do make a big difference to the governors that are implementing these plans. Uh, what we've seen is Republicans, both parties, uh, looking to business leaders to get advice on, uh, 
um, whether to proceed with the planning for the CPP or, or to fight it. So, um, again, for, right. for those hey, of you who are here, yep. Just, just to add to that, I think that's a very important point, and, and that also raises another possible uh, path of influence here, um, which is one way to influence is to write your own brief to the Supreme Court. Uh, another way to influence is if your state's governor uh, is, uh, is trying to decide whether to pursue the case in the Supreme Court. Um, or your state's mayor is deciding whether to join an amicus brief in the Supreme Court, you can, you can lobby them. You can, you can persuade them to file or not to file uh, in the Supreme Court. Uh, obviously, the, the fact that the state took one position in the D.C. Circuit does not oblige that state to take the same position in the Supreme Court. And obviously, this is an election year, and there could be different people in power. Okay, um, our next uh, question is from uh, Hope Shear. I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing that correct, from Houston, Texas. Um, she has a question about um, litigation over whether governors um, uh, sh should be planning CPP implementation even with the stay. I, I guess this would be not uh, something in the Supreme Court track, but it re would relate to is there a way to force governors to um, be preparing for CPP even if there's a stay. Um, that's that might uh, uh, Simon. That may be a little. Um, uh, that that may not be <laughs> what we talked about. But uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah. That, I mean, that certainly has been raised as an issue. I think it's been raised more as an issue of can they plan given that there's a stay. Um, to which I I think the answer is yes. Um, but th there's obviously a distinction between a, a state voluntarily engaging in planning or the federal government you know, inviting the state to, to talk to it and, and bounce plans off it um, and a state being compelled to engage in planning. And, and clearly the, the meaning of the Supreme Court's order is that while the state is in place, the state can't be compelled to engage in planning. Great. Um, we have a caller, a question from a caller, Elizabeth Gore in Washington, D.C. Elizabeth, uh, you're on the line. Okay, thanks. Uh, my name's Elizabeth Gore. I'm with Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek. There's a school of thought that if the D.C. Circuit has an overwhelming vote and a strong um, decision that the Supreme Court would not grant search. Can you comment on that? That would be especially true if the Supreme Court still split 4-4. Do you have a view on that? Uh, I, I think it's, it's possible. I think that's highly unlikely. First of all, I, this is obviously a political calculation, but it seems unlikely that the Supreme Court will still be 4-4 at that time. Now, as I mentioned, my, my guesstimate is that, the, is that the, um, the, the D.C. Circuit decision would come down sometime around about February next year. That would mean that the cert petition would actually come up for a decision by the Supreme Court in around about the middle of next year. So you've only got a 4-4 circumstance if, if no one's been confirmed by, say, June 2017. Um, I also think, you know, given, you know, obviously the, the Supreme Court's stay ruling is not a merits ruling, but it does involve a peek at the merits to inform that ruling. And given that you have the 5-4 split on that, 
Um, it would seem that the court is likely to view this as a fairly close case, and um, it would take a lot from the DC Circuit to dissuade the court uh, from the view that this is a really important matter that it ought to uh, weigh in on and figure out. I guess one, one possibility um, that I do think is kind of intriguing in the scenario you pose is that if there is a really strong DC Circuit decision uh, upholding the CPP, um, I, I think it will be an interesting question for the Solicitor General representing the EPA as to whether the Solicitor General might then go to the Supreme Court and say in effect, uh, look folks, by a very narrow vote you decided to stay this and you did say you'd stay it pending both DC Circuit and Supreme Court decision, uh, but now in light of the DC Circuit's strong decision, the odds are very much that this thing is valid, so why don't you lift the stay uh, pending the Supreme Court proceedings? Uh, I don't think they would do that, but it, it's, it's definitely an idea that we would merit consideration. Uh, our next uh, uh, question is from Yul Anderson from the uh, African American Future Society in Port, uh, Newport Ritchie in Florida. Uh, Yul, you're on the line. Hi, thank you very much. Um, my question is if the ruling um, is upheld and um, you know, the energy industry has to reduce um, CO2 emissions. Is there uh, a need to highlight the civil society impact within an amicus brief? As we know, a lot of energy companies pass supposed costs onto consumers. Um, well, one, one certainly can, yes, and I mean that I'm sure it will, is, well, it has been in the DC Circuit part of the, uh, part of the arguments pr presented against the CPP that it will, um, you know, uh, affect uh, people throughout society. Um, so I, I guess, you know, one, one interesting perspective that a business slash economic amicus brief could take uh, would be to try to educate the court about the, the best economic thinking as to the likely impact of the plan. Uh, how much will it actually increase, if it will increase, uh, the cost of energy, and what do the big global numbers uh, as to the cost of energy translate to if you start looking at individual people's electricity bills. So, so yes, I think, I think that's a potentially you know, interesting area to address. Uh, and on the, uh, on the math there, one of the things that we've learned from our programming on CPP over the last few years is um, there's a, there are a lot of arguments being made that uh, the cost of the implementing the CPP is could cost businesses so much that they would shut down factories or close uh, offices here and then move them overseas. Um, we did the math and uh, typical co company spends less than 1% of its total budget on energy costs and the CPP is expected to increase those costs by about 3% over five years before the costs begin to drop. So if less than 1% of your costs increase by 3%, you're essentially multiplying 0 0.01 by 0 0.03 and that means that if it costs you $100 to make your product, 
the CPP could increase the cost by about three cents on a $100 product. Um, at the same time, what we're seeing, again, from testimony that we're, we've been collecting at our briefings is uh, businesses are seeing, uh, uh, facing higher costs uh, on their supply chain. Uh, commodity prices are more volatile. They've got higher costs on uh, more damage to their properties. Um, and um, uh, what, we've, what was most common in, in the, the briefings we've done is companies talking about how severe weather has affected consumer demand. That's everything from restaurants and hotels to uh, uh, minor league ball teams to uh, 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 tour boat companies uh, and golf courses. So um, one of the things that uh, we've been doing at Business Forward is as we do these briefings and business leaders come to us with questions about the CPP or input on how much severe weather is costing their business, we put them in touch with others who are interested in, in um, submitting testimony to Congress or to contacting members of Congress. Just to be clear, if you are for the CPP, we can forward you to certain groups. And if you are against the CPP, we will forward you to other groups. We want to make sure that anybody who has something to add in this debate and wants to get involved can do so in a way that's meaningful and efficient. So. Um, uh, for those on the call, if you're interested in participating in a brief in the future, uh, regardless of the position that you want to advocate for, just let us know and we will make sure we put you in, in, in touch with the right people. Um, um, I think that's about all the time we've got. Uh, Simon, are there any points that, uh, that, uh, to, that we should be making uh, that uh, uh, we, didn't, um, we didn't cover yet? Uh, no, thanks, Jim. I, I th and I, but I do think your last point is is obviously an important one. And, and look, there are three options. There's you, you can write an amicus brief for the CPP. You can write an amicus brief against it, and you can write an amicus brief that you know you, you may, for whatever reasons, perhaps political reasons, business reasons, or whatever, not want to take an ultimate position on the CPP, but you may have something informative to tell the court. And you right. don't have to take a firm position one way or the other, so long as you have something to tell the court that relates to your knowledge and your, your experience and the realities that you face, um, and, and that also relates in some sort of way to the case. Great. Well, Simon, thank you very much. Um, uh, thank you very much for uh, joining us, um, and uh, we will be doing uh, more calls uh, in the coming weeks on CPP, on trade, infrastructure, uh, workforce development, uh, you name it. Um, uh, our next call is October 11th with Lisa Elman. Uh, it is on the emerging drone industry and drone regulation. It's 2 p.m. on October 11th. Uh, if you um, uh, have any questions about it, please email us at info at businessfwd.org. Uh, Simon, thank you very much. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you.